A few weeks ago, I was at work, and I was approached by a man who saw my name tag. Uh, I work as a spiritual counselor in hospice care. And this man doesn't know me. He didn't know me. And he asked me a question. After seeing the title on my badge, he asked, Are you a Christian? To which I responded, Yes, I am. And his second question was, Are you a real Christian? Or are you just playing the role? And after we talked a little more, he clarified why he asked those questions. And it turns out that this man has been struggling with a particular sin. And he's been looking for help. And he's turned to uh, some who have professed faith in Christ, who have not been able or have not desired to help him with this sin. And so this man has been desperately looking for help, and he knows that he can find it in Christ, but he's been looking for an authentic Christian. We tend to want to verify the authenticity of things that are valuable. We do this with gold, for example, if you own gold or if we own gold. I don't know, own gold. But with things like such as our health, we try to prove or we try to examine whether to see whether we're healthy. And if we do that with temporal things, we must make sure to examine our most valuable possession, which is salvation. Now, we've all rebelled against God and deserve to be judged and separated from Him, as we read in Scripture. Uh, our greatest need, then, is to be forgiven of sin. Or our greatest need is salvation. And God has provided a way for man to be saved And that is through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came proclaiming the gospel. And there in Mark, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And now that God has provided for man's greatest need, we must test our faith if we claim to have faith in Christ, to make sure that it's genuine. And this morning, we're going to go over uh, the letter of James. And if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find that on page 1011. And if you're taking notes, the main idea of this sermon is, and of the epistle, is that The epistle of James describes the relationship between faith and works. James describes the relationship between faith and works. And in this epistle, we find what can be seen as tests that verify, confirm, or prove a true and living faith in Christ. As opposed to a dead faith. James says that faith will be evidenced by a Christian's lifestyle. And James helps us to understand what the character of living faith looks like. And so there are five points um, for today with a few sub-points. 
And so let's start with the first. First one, which is, who is James? If you turn there with me to James chapter 1, verse 1, we read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are four men in the New Testament with this name. There's the first, James, the son of Zebedee. Now, this James was an apostle. He was the brother of John, and both of these men were the sons of Zebedee also known as the Sons of Thunder. And if you might recall, they wanted to call fire from heaven um, on a certain occasion when Jesus was rejected. Now this James was one of the inner three closest to Jesus. He was martyred by Herod Agrippa in AD 44, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Now, this would make it hard for him to be the author because it was too early in the church's development for him to have written the letter. The second James that we read of in the New Testament is James, the son of Alphaeus. And this James was another apostle. And we don't know much about him, but we know that he was the son of Alphaeus and that he was one of the twelve. Next, we have James, the father of Judas. And this is Judas, not Iscariot. And we don't really know too much about him. And then this leads us to the fourth uh, possibility, James, the brother of Jesus. And we know a lot more about this James. And his life makes him the best candidate for being the author of this letter. And James is known as the Lord's brother, uh, as Paul addresses him in Galatians 1.19. And we find that later in life, James became an influential leader in the Jerusalem church. Now, most scholars believe that this James did not become a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection. And this is based on his attitude towards Jesus and his skepticism, as recorded in Mark 3 and John 7. There in John 7, verses 3 through 5, John writes that not even his brothers believed in Jesus. And this, of course, included James. So let's think about that for a minute. James, the half-brother of Jesus, grew up with him. He saw him grow up. I'm sure they probably slept in the same room together. And when Jesus' ministry started, he, I'm sure, heard Jesus preach and teach. And yet, he did not believe. And it kind of reminds me of the hardness of my own heart. Because I grew up in the church, hearing about Jesus, going to Sunday school. Uh, As a matter of fact, I lived a block away from the church and we had, I think, five services and I was forced to go to most of them. And even as I was brought up in the church, I rebelled and I didn't put my trust in Jesus. I acknowledged him. But I didn't have faith in him. And that didn't happen until I was 22, just to be sure I am saved now. And it goes to show us that being religious, going to church, acknowledging Jesus, even growing up with Jesus, as James did, doesn't guarantee one to have true living faith in him. Something has to happen. 
Jesus must call us to himself. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He he writes, and this helps us, leads us to believe that Jesus came to faith after Jesus appeared to him. After Jesus had resurrected. Paul writes, after the resurrection of Christ, explaining that he delivered the gospel he received and that after Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, according with scriptures, Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. So Jesus revealed himself to James, which then eventually led him to believe in Christ. And in Acts 1, we read that after James believed, this was after Jesus ascended, of course, proof that James believed was that he was then present in the upper room and was praying with the rest of Jesus' followers, waiting for Jesus' promise to be fulfilled. So his faith began to lead him into action. And so we have reason to believe that this James, the Lord's brother, is the author. And so we go to our second point, the audience. James writes this letter to Christian Jews who had been dispersed or scattered among the nations. So if we look there again in chapter 1, verse 1, to the second portion of it, it says that James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. And we know that James speaks to Christian Jews who were already familiar with the gospel, because throughout this letter, James refers to to them as my brothers or brothers and sisters. And we see that there in verse 1 as we just read. And then again in verse in chapter 2 verses, uh, verse 15 in chapter 3 verse 1. And we find it throughout the letter. And so the recipients of this letter scattered because of the persecution that had resulted in the, uh, in the stoning of Stephen. In, and we read about that in Acts 7. And so these brothers and sisters most likely heard the gospel at Pentecost and were saved then or sometime after. And in Acts, we read that it was the Lord who added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And those who heard the word believed and their number increased. So after Stephen died for Christ, the persecution started under Paul. And Paul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So we see that these Jewish Christians were part of the church in Jerusalem, but they were scattered because of the persecution, and were no longer living in Jerusalem. And it is to these believers that James writes, And so, as these believers scattered, James knew that they would experience other trials. So, James wrote to them to remind them of the way that Christians respond to tribulations. Or the way that faith responds to the tribulations in this life. So, we've briefly covered who the author is and who he's writing to. Now let's look at some of the specifics 
in this letter. The third point is, the testing of our faith is biblical. The testing of our faith is biblical. There are many passages in Scripture that affirm this. And I'm going to give you a few. In the Old Testament, we find there in Psalm 26, verses 1 and 2, that David calls God to examine him, to prove and to test his heart and mind. Once again, in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he says, Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. In Lamentations chapter 3 verses 39 and 40, Jeremiah shows sorrow over Judah's judgment due to their unrepentant sin. He says, why should we complain about the judgment? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. In the New Testament, we read there in Galatians chapter 6 verse 4, let each person test his own work. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.28, Let each person examine himself. And then, and then in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. <laughs> Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The first letter of John is, um, the first epistle of John is also a letter of tests. As Pastor Jer Jeremy preached um, last year, uh, we went through some of these tests. And for example, John compares those who say they believe in Christ and those who actually believe in Christ. And he gives them different tests, such as this one. Those who have fellowship with God walk in light. And he says that in 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And what John is getting at in his letter is that it's far more important to do than to simply say. And the main idea in John's epistle is that. And so we find that throughout his epistle... John writes, real Christians obey God's commands. And these are all titles taken from Pastor Jeremy's sermons. True Christians obey God by loving His people and not the world. True Christian living is evidenced by a life of overcoming through Jesus Christ. Then in 2 Peter 1, uh Peter provides a series of tests to confirm one's calling and election, or to validate one's faith. And here in James, we find a letter that provides a string of tests that help validate one's salvation. So we find that the testing of a Christian's faith is something that is biblical and found throughout Scripture. Jesus gives an important warning Faith will be tested in the end. 
So earlier we heard that man's greatest need is salvation. And if our greatest need is salvation, then it makes sense why we find the theme of testing our faith throughout Scripture. Now I want to draw your attention to one of the to a particular passage uh, there in Matthew seven twenty one through twenty three. You can go ahead and turn there with me. This passage flows from Jesus' teaching known as uh, there in the Sermon on the Mount, which can also be seen as providing a series of tests that authenticate one's salvation. In in the preceding verses to this passage, we find that Jesus warns about false prophets. So he writes, uh, beginning there in verse 15 of chapter 7, Beware of false prophets, he makes a distinction, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a deceased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. There in uh, 21, he continues saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus gives them a test to know whether they are of God. These prophets are of God or not. And then Jesus provides a glimpse of the coming judgment and explains that not all who claim to know him will be saved or are saved. So I hope that we are understanding the importance of the testing of our faith. Now we move on to the fourth point. Some key elements in James. James wants his audience to understand that simply saying that one has faith in Christ is not enough to validate one's faith. So if you turn to chapter 2 of James, verse 19, James says, 2.19, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So professing faith in Christ is a good start. But it should not be the only test for validating one's faith. Because even the demons believe in Christ. But they don't submit to Him. In his letter, James says that agreeing with scriptural truths alone is of no use unless it produces the fruit of a transformed lifestyle that is characterized by godliness. Scripture, and as we will see in James, teaches that true living and saving faith in Jesus Christ is evidenced by a transformed 
lifestyle. And if you want to take note of these verses, these are some key verses in James. Uh, they're in James 1.22. James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves or lying to yourselves. In chapter 2, verses 17, 20, and 26, James emphasizes that faith without works is dead. In chapter 3, verse 13, James calls us to show our works or show our fruit by good conduct or a good lifestyle. In four, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then in chapter 4, verse 8, James makes an invitation to those who find that their faith is dead. He calls and invites them to trust in God, to believe in the gospel. Now, to make it clear, while James writes about works being necessary to prove one's faith, he's not saying that one earns one's salvation through, through works. That's not biblical. What James is getting at is the way one's faith is confirmed or verified. Now, some argue that Paul's writing and James's letter contradict one another. But we'll see that they, they don't. They actually complement each other. Paul answers the question in his writings, How does someone receive salvation? Which is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. James, on the other hand, answers this question. How does one know if his faith is real? Or how do... We know if our salvation is real. So good works are not the cause of salvation, but the fruit of it. And this letter shows us the character of what saving faith looks like. It will be evident in one's lifestyle. And this takes us now to our fifth and final point. Which is an overview of the tests in the letter of James. And there are nine subpoints in this final point. So James can be divided into nine sections, which can also be seen as a series of tests. We'll do a quick overview today and then dig deeper into them in the coming months. Now, before we start, I want to remind you that. Man's purpose, because everything has a purpose in this world, but man's purpose is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever, as John Piper is known for um, highlighting in, in his sermons. And these tests won't make sense unless we keep this in mind, that our purpose is to glorify God. And the perfect model of this is Jesus Christ, who perfectly submitted himself to God and glorified him. And so these tests are given as a way to bring our faith to maturity, or to put it another way, to make us more Christ-like, for the purpose of glorifying God. Now let's see how these tests accomplish that. 
Number one, James talks about the endurance of trials. And we see that, or we find that in chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. This test is one that deals with the proper response of genuine faith when faced with trials. James writes that the proper response is joy. And he explains that the proper response to trials is joy. And a Christian can respond with joy. Not because of one's circumstance, but because of one's position in Christ. And so he explains the proper response to trials. The need for wisdom in trials. Specific examples of trials. And then he ends with the reward for passing the trial. And James says that the key to passing the test is steadfastness or endurance or perseverance. Now there will be distinct trials that the Lord will allow His children to encounter. But one thing is certain that we are all in a trial here on earth enduring as we live in this world as we wait for the Lord to return. James says that the price for enduring until the end is eternal life, which comes as a result of God's promise. And John, in chapter 16, he writes about Jesus telling his followers ahead of time, in this world you will have tribulations. And that's what I love about Jesus, that whenever he calls someone to himself, he always magnifies the small print. He never hides it and then brings it up once we, or someone professes to have faith in Christ. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, you will have trials. No, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And Jesus there writes that we will have tribulations in this world. It's a given. James even says, when, uh, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, but when. Because trials are normal in the Christian life. And Jesus says to, to take heart because he has overcome the world. And in that same passage there in John 16, he says that he tells us these things so that his believers... His followers may have peace. And so James explains the proper response that a true and living faith will have when encountered by different tribulations. And so God will allow His children to be tested. Why? Because it's for our good. Because it's through trials that our faith grows and matures. And it's only when situations are out of our control that we learn to trust God and not in ourselves. So truth, true faith endures and responds by saying, Lord, although I'm experiencing, and you can insert your predicament or trial, I will continue praising you. I will continue following you, obeying you, submitting to you, 
Not because of my present circumstance. Not because of my trial. But because of who you are. Because you are God. You are worthy to be followed. Worthy to be believed. And so just as Jesus came to seek and save. He will also mature our faith for his glory. So I want to ask you. How are you responding to the trials in your life? Are you grumbling and complaining? Or are you growing in your trust in God? Remembering that He's sovereign over all things. And no matter where you find yourself, everything is going according to God's plan. Which is good for your life and mine. Are we thanking Him for the trials because they are making us more like Christ? Remember, God knows what's best for us. We don't. Then James moves on to the way of temptation. And we find that in chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. This can be seen as a test with something else that we all face, temptations. In this section, James goes on to explain that God is never the one responsible for temptation. We're the ones responsible for temptation. And we can see man's unwillingness to accept responsibility for his own sin from the very beginning in Genesis When God confronted Adam for his disobedience, Adam was quick to blame God because God was the one who created Eve and gave her to him. And so James teaches that genuine faith results in owning one's sins and then turning to Christ for forgiveness and for change. And in that same section, James describes God, the giver of good and perfect gifts. Because God is good. God is the source of our salvation, and that includes regeneration. Meaning that God is the cause of a believer's spiritual transformation. And true faith will respond um, and will will produce the fruit of a transformed life as God transforms our heart. Next, the practice of God's Word, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. The practice of God's Word. In this section, uh, James teaches us about the proper response that faith in Christ has to the Word of God. And he says that true faith is evidenced by three things. Number one, listening to the word of God. Number two, receiving the word of God. And number three, practicing the word of God. According to James, to only listen to the word but not receive it and practice it is to deceive oneself. Now, what does this look like practically? Well, James helps us to see that obedience to God's word is manifested in a lifestyle because that's what determines genuine faith. 
A Christian will not always obey perfectly. Although that is our goal, to obey perfectly. But a Christian's lifestyle will be one that's marked by obedience to Christ. For Christ said, if you love me, obey my commandments. So faith requires a growing knowledge of God's word. But James encourages us to not stop there, but also to practice what we learn. And so I want to ask you, are you disciplining yourself to be a doer of the word? It's important for us to do this because James says to not be a doer of the word is to lie to ourselves, to deceive ourselves. Next, we come to the inconsistency of partiality with faith. The inconsistency of partiality with faith. And that's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James writes about the way that true faith manifests itself when it comes to loving others. He begins with a warning against partiality. Then he provides an illustration of partiality, specifically with the way that those who profess faith in Christ treat the rich and the poor. James says that true faith will not make a distinction, but will love both equally. Then he wraps up the test by expressing the wrongness of partiality. He explains that genuine faith will produce the fruit of love. And the fruit of love will lead Christians to love his neighbor as himself, no matter the socioeconomic status. And this is another mark of one who was saved. Growing in this. Now I want to offer some words of comfort now that we're at the halfway point. um, Before some of you are tempted to overlook the evidences of grace in your life. Let me offer some words of comfort. If you're sitting there thinking, uh oh. I haven't passed these first couple of tests. I don't respond with joy in trials. I blame God for my temptations or any of these tests that we've talked about. Let me remind you that none of us obey perfectly, at least not yet. (laughs) Evidence of living faith is that we recognize the areas where we fall short and respond with humility. Meaning we turn to Christ for mercy and forgiveness. And so I want to ask you, is this the trajectory of your life? Do you humble yourself by turning to Christ when you notice that you fall short? Or are you proud and think that you can earn your right standing with God? Or remember that God sees the humble from a close and the proud he sees them from afar. Next, we come to the nature of saving faith. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And in this section, James explains that saving faith is more than just words. He says that uh, there in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Or in other words, does not have fruit that displays 
who he believes in. James says that true saving faith results in an obedient lifestyle. And he uses Abraham as an example. As Pastor Jeremy has been teaching us, Abraham lived, believed the Lord, which was manifested by his, by his lifestyle of obedience. And we've seen um, in the last couple of weeks and last year as we started that series, um, that Abraham didn't believe perfectly. He messed up quite a bit. But his lifestyle was marked by one of obedience, one who recognized his sin and turned to Christ or turned to God for forgiveness. And so that same lifestyle of obedience or of works, as James says, calls it, that validates one's faith is this lifestyle of obedience that, that validates one's faith as being useful, as being a faith that's alive. Number six, James talks about controlling the tongue. And we find that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is a test that proves one's faith is alive and healthy. James says that the tongue is powerful. And so true faith will be evidenced by the self-control of the tongue. He explains the inconsistency of the tongue that confesses to love or confesses to believe Christ, but says unloving things. And then James goes on to provide examples of this inconsistency. And he shows us what or how the tongue is controlled in someone who has faith, a living faith in Christ. Number seven, true and false wisdom. And we find that in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James helps us examine the difference between true wisdom and false wisdom. He says that true living faith is shown by one's good conduct. In other words, godly wisdom is characterized by, and, and you'll find that there in verses 17 and 18, it's characterized by purity, peace, gentleness, being open to reason, mercy, and good fruits, impartiality and sincerity, all of which is summed up by being a peacemaker, as he says in verse 18. And this sounds a lot like what we read in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Or if we wanted to rephrase that, blessed are the peacemakers, for their faith is alive. And this goes hand in hand with the proving of true saving faith. Next, the evil of worldliness, chapter 4, verses 1 through chapter 5, verse 6. Here James describes the passion that dead faith has for self-gratification. Rather than living out one's purpose to glorify God, one lives to seek his personal glory, his own personal glory. His heart is set on a deep longing for the things of this world and its system rather than for the things of God. And so here James is thinking loving 
or desiring the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Sinful, selfish desires for what God abhors. He says that these things aren't characteristic of someone who has true and saving faith. Because this is worldliness and is seen as a disregard for God. And so here, James writes about a living faith that will be evidenced by humility and submission to God. And so, I'd like to ask you to analyze your heart and ask yourself, what do you desire most? Do you desire your own glory? Is your heart set on the temporary things of this world? Or is it set on the eternal things of God? Is it set on God's glory? Because remember that man's purpose is to glorify God, not to glorify self. And then this leads us to the final section in James's letter. And it can be seen as counsel for Christian living. And we find that in chapter 5, verses 7 through 20, the rest of the letter. And we find a subset of other tests in this section that can be categorized as counsel for Christian living. And James encourages believers to be patient, as he talked about in, first, uh, in chapter 1, as we wait for the Lord's return. To be patient as we wait for the Lord's return. Which will happen because He has promised. And so our faith is not in vain. And as we have seen, Christ will reward those who endure with eternal life. Which means we will get to fully enjoy God forever without the effects of sin to disrupt that joy. James also describes the kind of speech, once again, that true faith will display. He says that true faith will display itself um, by honest speech. Then he says that true faith will also be known as it prays in all circumstances. Because we are fully dependent of God, even when trials are difficult, things are lacking and things are not going right. And then James ends with diligence. Diligence in evangelism or reaching those whose faith is not alive. Which comes or is evidenced by coming alongside and being diligent and sharing the gospel. Which we know is the power of God for salvation. And so a way of summing this up is that true faith understands the world, that the world is temporal. So no matter what happens, true faith will want to glorify God with its lifestyle. In conclusion, James is a letter about tests that verify, that confirm, or prove living faith in Christ. 
Living faith will be evidenced by a Christian's lifestyle and by the way we respond to the situation that God allows us to experience. James helps us understand what the character of living faith looks like as we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you know yourself not to be, or to be a Christian, and you're thinking of the areas where you fall short, be encouraged that sanctification is a process and is not instant, instantaneous. James understood that, that he wasn't perfect. Because there in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he talks about the taming of the tongue. And then he identifies himself with all Christians saying, for we all stumble in many ways. So James is not pretending to have made it or to be perfect. He says, I understand that we all stumble. But true and living faith will be characterized by a lifestyle that turns to Christ and submits to Christ. So sanctification is a process. Justification is instant and only takes place because of Christ's finished work on the cross. And that's great news. While the details of our sanctification may look slightly different for different believers that are in different stages of their walk with Christ, the trajectory of true faith will be the same, meaning we will grow in our love for God and our hate for sin. Over time, our living is being transformed through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in the believer. And just as He starts the saving work of His children, He will finish it and it will be evidence in a new godly lifestyle. Now, if you're visiting and you know that you're not a Christian, you know that you haven't identified with anything that you just heard, know that God desires to save you And this is the reason He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to seek and to save those who have rebelled against Him. He has promised that all those who acknowledge their rebellion and turn away from it by placing their trust in Christ will be saved. And proof that you have repented of your sin and trusted in Him will be evident as you start to see the things that we just talked about. And so I ask, do you long to obey God? James is not talking about being perfect. Because if we were, we wouldn't need Christ. As a matter of fact, we're always in need of Christ. For as we learned in Colossians, He is the one who holds all things together. And without Him, we're done. Let's pray. Oh, good and heavenly Father, we praise you as a good God who gives good gifts. We trust that, as your word says, if we being bad, we know how to give good things to those that we love. How much more will you give to your children good things? We praise you that everything you provide us with is for our good, including trials even if we don't see it as such. 
Father, we confess that we fall short, that we don't love you as we should, that we don't love our neighbors as we should, that we focus more on our own glory and our own comfort rather than your glory. But we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And even though we fall short, when we confess our sins, you are faithful. You are faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and of all wickedness. We thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see the evidences of grace in our life and that we would continue to desire to submit to you and to want to produce fruit that evidences our repentance. Not for our sake, but for your glory. We can't do this on our own, but we acknowledge that you can and so we turn to you. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.